Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. This is Reading the Globe. It's December 27, 2021. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting live from New York. Gotham in Decline Those of us who grew up in New York City in the 1980s have troubling memories of a grimy, graffiti-ridden urban landscape where danger was a part of everyday life and you could not walk the streets without anticipating the possibility of becoming a victim of harassment or worse. Crime was everywhere. The justice system had simply broken down. I remember that time all too well. We had a neighbor who rode the subways often and used to carry a heavy briefcase, which we learned one day did not have anything inside it. He was not transporting papers or spreadsheets in the briefcase, but wanted to have it handy in case he had to defend himself. Thugs had tried to rob him on past occasions. Everyone knew someone who had been a victim of a mugging or a violent assault or had seen the aftermath of an attack on the street, a bloodied, traumatized victim whose life would never be the same. The election of Rudolph Giuliani in the 1993 mayoral race drew howls of outrage from the left, even though it would have been hard to imagine a more ineffectual mayor than the incumbent one, David Dinkins, whose failure to quell the horrific Crown Heights riots in 1991 stands as one of the most disgraceful failures of any mayor in urban history. Under Giuliani and his police commissioner, William Bratton, with their tough broken windows approach, the city at last began to make steps to becoming slightly more civilized and habitable. The tough approach continued under Michael Bloomberg, but it came to an abrupt end under Bill de Blasio, who rejected aggressive policies as unfair to minorities in New York City. De Blasio did not seem to understand or care that while crime and disorder affected almost everyone, those who benefited most from a decline in the homicide rate were precisely the city's racial minorities. Now, at the end of de Blasio's awful tenure, incidents happen every day that cannot fail to summon memories of the 1980s. On December 2, a gang member with an arrest record going back to 2012 stabbed to death David Giri, a Columbia University graduate student from Italy, and viciously attacked two other strangers before being caught. The perpetrator was out on post-release supervision, presumably on the rationale that he did not pose a danger to anyone, or that it's okay to gamble with the lives of strangers to alleviate mass incarceration. This wanton bloodshed came just days after the November 22 attack by an as-yet unidentified assailant on Boo Jirajiewicz, a 23-year-old Thai woman who came to the city to work as a model. The New York Post cover story of December 16 details how she was waiting on the platform at the 14th Street Herald Square station when the attacker came up behind her and savagely beat and sexually assaulted the hapless victim. The photo of her bruised, bloodied face on the cover of the New York Post is more than just a horrifying image. It is a throwback to the vicious Hobbesian hell that New York was for so many years, and a symbol of the place we are once again becoming under the reign of liberal judges and policies. Unless our mayor-elect, former cop Eric Adams, can make good on his pledge to reverse course. Mayor Adams, let's see what you're made of.
Germany's Man of the Hour. The Economist's issue of December 11-17 features a profile of Germany's new Chancellor, Olaf Scholz. The article, Enter the Quiet Man, presents Scholz as a moderate pragmatist with a strong work ethic. It describes a politician who dabbled in far-left politics in his youth before embracing a more moderate outlook as a social democrat, not averse to working with politicians across the aisle or taking on the roles of vice-chancellor and finance minister during the long tenure of his predecessor, Christian Democrat Angela Merkel. According to the article, some of Scholz's fellow social democrats find him a bit too moderate, far from the politician who would be needed to spearhead a re-energized European left. Or at least that was the case until the COVID pandemic came along, the article tells us. Today, one may wonder just how moderate Scholz has ever really been beneath the surface. The pandemic has brought certain tendencies to light. The article details how the emergency gave Scholz, as finance minister, the opportunity to design a 750 billion euro recovery fund for the EU and to advance a far-reaching corporate tax deal. Now that he is chancellor, Scholz's purview over these and other state functions is even more vastly enlarged. The article describes his hugely ambitious plans for fighting climate change, not least by overseeing the shift to carbon-free industry. All this raises an interesting question. Do social democrats and progressives more generally really want the COVID pandemic to end? It has emboldened them and given them carte blanche to develop and implement social programs and wealth transfers that one might have deemed unimaginable in more normal times. The objections that smaller members of the EU might have to the allocation of a huge part of their national wealth to a nearly trillion-dollar recovery fund and the fund's administration by faraway bureaucracy sound out of sync with the times and with the spirit of collaborative anti-COVID efforts. Anyone who dares to stand up and suggest that others are not entitled to billions of euros in relief funds has a much less certain political future. If you cannot see the emperor's clothes, you are not fit for your job. There can be little doubt that the pandemic has, at the very least, emboldened socialist politicians to assume authoritarian functions far beyond what some of us might be willing to allow the state to take on, given all the lessons of the last century. On North Korea Parasite, Bong Joon-ho's Best Picture winner from 2019, presented to the world a stark vision of a stratified South Korea in which rich families live with total abandon and make no secret of their disdain for poor families, who must shed all self-respect and suck up to the rich to survive. This widely acclaimed film is not a flattering portrait of contemporary South Korea. But perhaps the worst mistake you can make is to conclude that South Korea is the bad guy in the endless quarrel with North Korea, or that life in North Korea may be underrated. Another article in The Economist issue of December 11-17, Sunflower State, presents the findings of researchers from the Database Center for North Korean Human Rights, an organization based in Seoul. The researchers interviewed refugees from the North Korean city of Hyesan about family life in the country they had fled. A full 47% of respondents said that women had become the primary breadwinners in families in the North. 37% said that men contributed the lion's share of earnings, and 17% said husbands and wives made equal contributions. 
According to the article, the reasons for these surprising findings have to do largely with the fact that the regime in North Korea forces men into state jobs for which they receive little or no pay. At the same time, the article explains, women in theory are exempt from any such requirements, but have little choice but to enter the workforce in order to help provide for their families. They often end up earning more than men, but they are not exempt from the responsibilities of caring for children. It's a bad deal for everyone. But it is arguably the men of North Korea who have the short end of the stick here. With neither the freedom to choose between a vocation and spending time with family, nor the competitive salaries that they might be earning in the West, men in North Korea may come to feel something of the class-tinged resentment that finally turns one of the protagonists of Bong Joon-ho's parasite homicidal. But overthrowing a totalitarian regime by force from the inside is, arguably, an even more doomed proposition than acting out a revenge fantasy against a callous and snooty upper-class family. On Joan Didion. The website Book and Film Globe, edited by Neil Pollock, was kind enough to give me space to share my thoughts on the passing of Joan Didion, the pioneering and prolific essayist, memoirist, critic, and novelist who showed us all how porous the borders between fiction and nonfiction narrative really are. To read Didion is to see that there is no reason an account of a trip to El Salvador, a Doors rehearsal, a Bay Area courtroom during a trial of Black Panthers accused of murder, or a stint in New York City during a tender and impressionable time of life, cannot have all the passion, drive, and power of riveting fiction from the pen of Joseph Conrad or Ernest Hemingway. Since Didion's passing on Thursday, December 23, tributes have come pouring in from critics, journalists, editors, and publishers all over the world. And I tried, in my Book and Film Globe tribute, to convey at least some sense of why readers are so passionate about Didion. One thing that some admire about Didion is the dilemma that she poses for radical ideologues. Here is a gifted female writer and journalist whose pioneering work influenced later generations. No doubt some feminists would like to claim Didion as a female groundbreaker. The fact that Didion was herself a trenchant critic of feminism which she accused of simplifying history and social reality and denying women many of the basic pleasures of life, is a problem for radical feminists. You could find no more shining illustration than Didion's work and career of how history is so much more complex than some inflexible ideologues would like it to be. The tributes over the last few days have been effusive in their praise of Didion's courage, talent, and intellectual gifts. They leave no doubt that she is a literary celebrity of a rare order. But here is the crowning irony of Didion's career. You have to ask whether she really enjoyed playing the celebrity, and whether fame, as distinct from literary greatness, was what she sought. Overlooked in many of the tributes over the last few days, Didion's 1977 essay, On the Road, charts how she came to appreciate the relative ease and convenience of modern travel even as she grew appalled at the invasiveness of the paparazzi who hounded her on book tours. They were everywhere, and their lack of taste became impossible to shut out. 
When Didion mentions to a Daily News photographer that one day in New York, her husband saw a man jump from a window and fall to the sidewalk outside the Yale Club, the reporter tells her with seeming indignation that it is necessary to snag a photo of the jumper falling through the air in order for the material to be of use to a newspaper. The photographer tells her that many of the bodies falling to the ground in Manhattan are actually not jumpers at all, but window washers who fall. Joan Didion left many things to the world of letters, and it is a pity that her short essay, On the Road, will not get more attention in the flurry of tributes in the days and weeks to follow. You will be hard put to find a more trenchant account of the debased nature of the modern media, or an essay that better anticipates the reactions of a sick media machine that replayed the horrific images of 9-11 over and over for the sake of ratings, clickbait, and profits. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper.